Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have uh, Nadia Doe. She's the founder of Sacred Heart Medicine. Uh, The website is sacredheartmedicine.us, and we're going to talk about her work, plant-based medicine and shamanism. So, Nadia, thank you for coming. Thank you for having me. So I understand a little bit, you know, plant-based medicine, but I don't know what shamanism is. And, you know, so what is it that you do? And then I want to ask you about your background and how you got into what you do. Uh, So what it is that I do is I help people heal trauma using psilocybin mushrooms and other plant medicine. Um, Shamanism is a type of, I guess you could call it spiritual type background that's very earth-based. Okay. Yeah. And I know um, I've actually spoken to some people at Johns Hopkins that are doing clinical trials with psilocybin and you know, they've gone through it with ketamine, they're doing it with um, ecstasy, you know, MDMA and a few other substances. So it's showing tremendous promise. But um, so I guess you're focusing more on psilocybin. What kind of scenarios do people come to you? What kind of traumas do they have? And then what's what's the process of helping them? Yeah, so I get people of all varieties. Um, I happen to specialize in childhood trauma and childhood sexual trauma. So I get a lot of that, but I also get combat veterans. Um, I get people who were indoctrinated into cults or certain kinds of religions, just people who have trouble moving forward with their life or who haven't been able to be helped in other areas, like with a traditional mental health counseling and so those sorts of things. Okay. When someone comes to you, like, what's your process? What do you do with them and how does it work? So when someone comes to me, we have a consultation, we go over their background, you know, where they are currently in their life, what types of things they've tried. And then we roll into sometimes doing one-on-one counseling and sometimes we go right into plant medicine work. And so primarily I do one-on-one work with psilocybin in a ceremony setting, which would be different than the clinical setting that's being studied at John Hopkins and MAPS and those organizations currently. Okay. Oh, well, obviously you're familiar with all of them. Yeah, excellent. So, yeah, their setting is, what's it like if you went to Johns Hopkins and did it? And then what's it like if, if someone did it with you? So I haven't been to Johns Hopkins, but I have I have read some of their research. You know, I've seen the pictures and all that. And my understanding is that it's very clinical. You know, you, you have eye shades on and headphones and mm-hmm. you take a prescribed dosage and you work with a clinical therapist or a doctor of sorts. And with me, it's it's very much laid back. It's rather uncontrolled. Um, you don't wear headphones. We have music playing in the room, but you're not isolated from me, which I think is really important in that process. Okay. Do you think that what Johns Hopkins is doing is a boon and a help to people like you into this, you know, to this healing medicine, or do you think it it's just neutral, or do you think it's going to hurt your ability to do what you do? No, you know, I think it's just different. It's a different type of people that are attracted to going the clinical route. And then you have the type of people who are attracted to going the spiritual route and they want to work with a shaman and they want to 
experience the spiritual aspect of it and learn about plant medicine. So it's just different. So someone comes to you and then again, what's, what's your process from there? Will you, you'll, I guess you'll do, you know, kind of an intake, you'll ask them where they're at. Is there any therapy that happens before you do the session or it's like, all right, let's get you scheduled and, you know, off you go. Or do you, do you need to know a lot about the person before you'll ever do a session with them? No, there is no therapy that takes place beforehand. I am not a licensed therapist. Um, actually, my my educational background is in massage therapy and the legal field. And okay. I kind of came into this work not really by choice, but by, I don't know what you would call it. Like, a, it's my path. It's my spiritual path. So when I speak to them and we go over the their background, in most cases, we go ahead and schedule a ceremony at that point because we both have a really good idea of if it's a good fit or not. A lot of times they're also seeing some form of counselor. I actually have a lot of therapists who refer people to me. And so they have that structure in place for afterwards. Okay. Because even if you don't do the therapy yourself, you know, do you say, all right, before we could work together, you know, I need you to go see a therapist for like one or two sessions or something. I do not. I I don't really think it's my place to to tell people that they should do that. But I, I mean, it certainly doesn't hurt anybody. Yeah. Okay. Got it. Will people have one session with you? Will they have multiple? Like, you know, how do you know what to do with them? Like, what what's your heuristic for making the decision on what to do? So this is where the shamanism part comes in. Um, my work is very intuitive, and I kind of play everything by feeling. So for the most part, people only sit with me once. They find that the experience is so profound and so deep that they end up catapulted into their life. And there's maybe only been two or three out of the hundreds that I've worked with who've come back for a second round. Oh, what is that stat again? So you work with hundreds of people and how many have come back for a second session? Just a handful, under five. Oh, okay. What do people tell you after their session? I mean, do you, as the session is done, do you discuss with them what happened or is it, you know, is it all personal and private? Like what happens during the session? I mean, just give me a few, like if I wanted to come see you, what, what would I expect to experience? If you were willing to have me. Yeah, of course. Um, So what that would look like is we would reserve an entire day. We would get together in the morning. We would work with a couple other plants that are non-psychoactive, such as tobacco. And then we would work with the mushrooms. Then I actually roll into doing some somatic body work. So I'm a certified craniosacral therapist. And I like to get people on the table while they're going into the experience to really take down their nervous system to a very parasympathetic state. So they feel very relaxed, very supported, and it tends to make the entire experience very enjoyable and very embracing. Really? So you do uh, craniosacral work while they're starting to feel the effects of the mushrooms? I do, yes. Wow. I know about it a little bit, you know, that uh, I guess you can get the cerebral spinal fluid to flow better through, you know, all the vertebrae and where it's supposed to flow through. So I bet it has a very, very big effect on people in their experience when you do that. I mean, it's it's profound even when they don't take anything. So if you could imagine right, that right. your your mind is in a more open and expanded state, it really takes you to a place of relaxation that we often can't find without deep meditation and practice. Does it heighten the effect of a, of a given dose or does it just like how does it change the experience for people? Just in the way that it makes them feel more safe and more relaxed. And when you're working with psychedelics, the most important thing is that the person is feeling safe. Have you tried doing it before they take the dose or is it early enough if you do it, you know, as it's starting that it's still like, like what would it do if you did it first and you got them all 
massaged and relaxed and everything flowing, and then they took took a dose of the mushroom. You know, I haven't done that before, but I'm sure it would have a similar effect. Yeah, it may have more of an effect. I don't know. You know, I mean, I can see how it would yep. be uh, would be beneficial. It would prepare your body to receive, you know, the medicine in the best way it could. I guess is how I'd put it, right? Absolutely. Yes. Okay. Well, maybe you'll try that sometime. You know, you'll do it beforehand and see what happens. Up to you. Yeah. Interesting. So, okay. You'll do that work as they're starting to, uh, you know, experience the mushrooms and then just observe them or what happens then? You know, it depends on the person. Some people really just need their space and they go deep within themselves. And it's my job, my job to just hold the container to make them feel like they're not alone, to make them feel safe, um, to keep the space energetically clear, that sort of thing. And some people, they need to talk. Some people need to be heard. Others need to be held. It just depends on what the person needs. Interesting. I don't know. Are people, uh, do they remember what they asked you to do? And are they like, you know, if someone wanted to be held or like started crying or whatever it was, do they tend to get embarrassed when they're done or do they remember? So you remember everything. The point, the point of working with psilocybin mushrooms in my experience has been to be completely present in your body. And so it's not this total out of body experience. Therefore, when you come out of it, you actually do remember everything that happened Honestly, most people aren't embarrassed. They they have so much gratitude that they don't know what to do with um, just for being in that space and being held and being able to feel safe doing so. That's cool. Do you stay with them the whole time they're going through it? I do, yes. You don't get bored and like have to watch movies on Netflix or anything? Or? I'm actually in the space with them. So one of the things about having the shamanic um, calling is that I actually access that psychedelic space without taking anything. And so when they're going through their journey, I'm feeling everything they're feeling. I'm seeing a lot of the things that they're seeing. And in doing so, they feel like they're not in it by themselves. How could you do that, though? How do you know what they're, I mean, unless they tell you, like, how do you know what they're experiencing? Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click on support us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. Like I said, that's part of the shaman thing. It's it's having the ability of sight in um, in that in that different space, that different dimension, whatever you want to call it. Do you have any insights before they go into it, or when they go into it? Are you taking mushrooms at the same time, or no? You're just able to access what they're feeling. Typically, I'm not taking anything, though I do ask the mushrooms. Occasionally, they'll say yes. So I should preface that with the plants speak to me. So I always ask permission. And if they want me to partake, I do. And if they don't, I don't. But I do get quite a bit of insight about a person before we even work together. A lot of times they start dreaming about me before we start, like, in the weeks that lead up to it. And we have kind of like a psychic connection that is really indescribable. Well, so when you speak to someone, do you do you feel like you're empathic where you get a sense of uh, their personality? And I mean, everyone does to some extent, but 
do you feel like you do to a large extent? Are you able to read people and get a good feel for them before you, you know, you let them go through this experience? I mean, like, what's that like for you? I'd say, yes, I do that. I don't love the word empathic because that implies that you feel everything. And I really think that that's a sign of poor boundaries. I do. I have the ability to see big picture. So when somebody tells me the story about their life or where they're stuck or where they're struggling, I can see the larger picture of cycles, of points of trauma, of belief systems. And kind of with that big picture, you're able to really go in and pull out the things, the key moments or the key belief systems that need to be changed. You know, I'm asking because I, I just don't know. I don't, I'm not assuming that you know everything or, you know, what, what kind of insights you get. But like have people told you, wow, you're really just, you know, you're really good at just figuring out what people are, are feeling or you're just very, I don't know, tuned into how people think and feel or I guess we'll go to the history a little bit. So how did you even know that? this kind of thing would be a calling for you and you know what's what's your background on it so i came into this actually i was an addict and i was a terrible wife and a terrible mother i was really unhappy i was working a job that i hated and i was just kind of like at the end of my rope i tried every medication under the sun for this treatment resistant depression and i was diagnosed with borderline personality disorder which is one of those like incurable personality disorders So I actually came to plant medicine as a last resort, and I sat in an ayahuasca ceremony with 80 other people with no shaman. And going into that experience, my my mind sort of broke open, and I lifted up the weight of the entire room, and I was shown that that was my job. That was what I was supposed to do in this life, was to hold space for other people. Hmm. And it it was pretty traumatic, I'll be honest. And then I had to quit my job and I had to kind of rearrange my life to start going down this path. But why was it, were you shocked? Like, oh my God, am I really supposed to do this? Or like, why was it traumatic for you? It was just a lot. So that was my first experience with any kind of plant medicine or psychedelic. I was addicted to Adderall and alcohol and uh, synthetic substances. And so stepping into this world, having that be your first experience, you know, where it feels like you're having a psychotic break and then you have to question reality, basically, that was really hard. Right. Yeah, I'm sure. So you kind of got the message that this is what you're supposed to do. And then how did you figure out what to do? How did you figure out that there was such a thing as shamanism or shamanism? And how did you go on the path? Well, actually, that's kind of magical. Once this started, I had teachers who just showed up in my life. So I worked with a mentor down in Netherlands, Colorado. I had a Shipibo maestro show up in Orlando, where I lived at the time. And the Shipibo people are the original keepers of ayahuasca. So they're an indigenous tribe down in Peru. And this guy just showed up in my, my hometown. And I, got, I had the opportunity to train under him for six months periodically. And then another teacher, when I moved out on the West Coast, appeared in my life, somebody who specialized in demonology. And it just, it kind of all fell into place and people started seeking me out. And so it it just became clear, you know, when somebody randomly says, hey, do you want to trip sit for me? I kind of feel like that's a sign. That's how it started anyway. Okay. And then, all right. So you trained, and I guess you did a lot of these sessions yourself. Like it wasn't just the one ayahuasca one, but you did it many times, right? If you like this podcast please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. I did. So after the ayahuasca experience, I actually started working with psilocybin um, because it was more gentle. It was easier on my body. 
And through that process of working with myself, um, I actually uncovered that I had a ton of childhood trauma that was completely repressed, including some pretty severe sexual trauma. And in working through that, I was shown how to heal it. And that's why that's why it's my specialty, because I help other people do the same. Hmm, okay. I don't know. What, what are some of the stories of people that you've worked with, you know, without details that they don't want to share? But I mean, which what kind of stories or experiences really impacted you and, you know, made you feel like you're doing the right thing or just I don't know. Like, like how have you been impacted by people's experiences and what are some noteworthy ones? There was one gentleman that I worked with who had a similar sexual trauma to myself, except that he had gone a step further and become a predator. And being able to hold space or to help somebody heal who is the same person as your perpetrator, you know, if you've been victimized by, let's say, an abusive father, to sit with another abusive father and not be judgmental and not be triggered and to just be able to love him, that was profound for me. And then help him uncover his own childhood stuff and release it and no longer feel attracted to children after we work together, which is huge, you know. I had another client who was in a cult. And so the layers of indoctrination and the not having his own identity and hating women and all those things, he came out of that cult not knowing who he was, not knowing how to live life fully, how to be a good father. And he came to plant medicine and I've watched him just like blossom into this beautiful human who now helps people, who's discovering his own feminine side. Um, who's just finding out who he really is underneath all of the brainwashing. Okay. Those, I mean, those are some of my favorites, but honestly, they're all, they're all wonderful. Yeah. What types of conditions or problems seem to be the, you know, work best with the mushrooms and which ones are just, I don't know, resilient and it's hard to get, uh, you know, people have to do, let's say multiple sessions, or I guess you said they don't really have to. I don't know. Is there anything that, uh, any conditions you run into or problems where the mushrooms just didn't work? So I'd say when people come to me that aren't actually ready to face themselves or to face whatever it is they're running from, they don't get as much out of it. But that doesn't happen very often. Some addictions are also on the resilient side. Again, it depends on where they are in their cycle. Um, sometimes we just need to go through the same cycle several times before we learn whatever lesson we're trying to learn through it. And then we break it, you know. Other than that, I haven't... I haven't really encountered anything that hasn't been helped at least find relief. Okay. So that, you know, that's excellent. Do people relapse and have to come back to you after a period of time? I wouldn't say relapse. I've never had anybody move backwards after working with me, at least not that I'm aware of. I do stay in touch with a lot of the people or they periodically give me updates. I would say a lot of times they might reach a new layer, like they might reach a new level of awareness or a new belief system that was under the one that was obvious or something like that. Um, and they get stuck again and then they come back to plant medicine in some way, shape or form to move forward. Okay. But so no one really slides back, but I mean, again, you said only a small percentage need like a second session. Those people that do, I mean, uh, what, what do you notice about that second session with them? So the people who typically come back for the second session are actually people who have really complex PTSD. 
So like the one I was speaking of with the indoctrination, the cult, that's very complex. It's very manipulative. You have emotional, mental, physical things all going on. And so there's just a lot more layers than, let's say, one incident that was traumatic. Okay. Well, in terms of some of the issues people have, so like you had treatment-resistant depression. I'm sure that's very, very common. For those kind of people, like what, uh, what do they experience before the session and after? You know, before the session, I guess. We, so will you do the session if they are depressed at that moment, or do they have to be in like an okay state? I've noticed that, and I don't know all these people that have it, but you know, I know some personally that do. They seem to cycle. Um, they'll be okay for a while, and then they'll go through a day or a couple of days where they're really unhappy, and then they'll come back, and then they'll cycle down again. Uh, Sometimes the cycles are days, weeks, months apart. But, you know, when someone comes to you for the session, I guess they're excited in a, in a better state or some people are really down. Are there circumstances where you won't do the session? And you're like, you know, we have to wait. The time's not right. Yes. Um, somebody cannot be in a state of crisis if they're really scrambling or they're really suicidal or they're having panic attacks every day, that sort of thing. That's what our actually that's what our Western medicine is really good for is getting people out of the crisis that's not something that I specialize in, nor is it something I'm trained in. So again, it doesn't happen very often. Occasionally, I'll get somebody who calls me who's in a crisis. But in general, I will work with them, just not with the plant medicine. Okay, so they need to be at least somewhat stable before you can work with them and help. Yes, yes, at least in the ceremony setting. Okay, that, yeah, that makes sense. So yeah, I, I kind of rushed you out of it. But so in the beginning of the ceremony, you said you'll do some cranial sacral work. I guess you'll have music on and then you'll ask the mushrooms if you're, if they're going to give you any insight. I don't know if I'm putting it the right way, but you'll either hear a yes or a no. And then while the person's experiencing, you know, the mushrooms and they're peaking and going through it, do you talk to them or do you sit there kind of in a receptive mode and see what comes to you? Like what, what happens during a session? Well, I typically don't talk to them unless they speak to me first, unless I'm, I'm given like a really strong message to say something or to maybe some, it's light sage or it's open a window. For the most part, it's pretty hands off. Um, my job is to just to be there, to witness and to hold the space for them to to go within themselves. Okay. It sounds like massage. You know, I've heard that like massage therapists will say, you know, they don't talk to the person unless the person talks to them. You know, you can probably tell I just talked the whole time. If I went actually with you, you'd probably be like, shut up. That's one of the cool things about having an experienced facilitator, too, is that if you're trying to talk, but you're only trying to talk to avoid looking inside yourself, we can call you on it and be like, okay, it's time to close your eyes. You know, it's time to go in. Okay, that makes sense. So some people, like you could see, they have strategies to try to avoid, you know, letting go and, and getting into it. Yes, yeah, that does happen from time to time. Oh, uh, okay, I see. Yeah, yeah, I see what you mean. Yeah, some people... I guess probably myself included, they, it's scary to be out of control. You know, I, 20 years ago, I had an experience with this stuff and um, it can feel like you're on the edge of reality and it's, it could be a bit scary, you know, absolutely. Or, or terrifying. I really think that at the core, everybody is afraid of losing control. Yeah, no, that's true. I remember thinking at one point, you know, tomorrow I'm going to wake up. It's going to be sunny. I'm going to be hungry. I, I had to think like really basic type stuff because at one point, you know, I was like freaking out, but then it was, uh, you know, things improved from there. But I remember at one point I was like, oh no, you know, it's like you're on a, um, a 
roller coaster and you know the, you just got to go for the ride you, you can't get off when you want to you know that's correct <laughs> all right so what um i don't know what refinements are there, are there like do you feel like you got the process down pat or what you know do you are you in like consistent improvement mode like you know how do you feel about your practice and where do you want it to go from here I do feel like I have it down pat. However, I try not to control that. You know, I'm always open to where we could have improvement to how things could be a little smoother or uh, feedback that a client gives me on tweaking something. But in terms of moving forward, actually, I do a lot of one-on-one work helping people, but I also train other facilitators to work with psilocybin in the shamanic way over the clinical setting. Um, So I do see that. I do see that really blowing up in the future, you know, training other people. Oh, okay. So have you started to train other people? I have, yes. Okay. What's that been like? Like, uh, I guess in this scale of ability, do you feel like you're really high up the scale? Or are there is there anyone that you've worked with, whether they trained you or you trained them, that just like, you were like, wow, this person is just unbelievable. And, and why, if so? I don't really feel like there's a scale. I feel like everybody's just different and we all bring different things to the table. I have worked with some people. There is specifically one woman that I just finished training and now she's facilitating. She is just top notch. It comes naturally to her and she used to be a caseworker, like a social worker. So she has all the, the mental health background as well, which is pretty cool. Okay, but there's, there hasn't been anyone that just like changed your perception of what you do or just like surprised you and they're just... I know they're operating on some other level that like, you, you know, you hope to aspire to or you're amazed by. Well, I've had a couple of teachers along the way and each one of them had something that they could do that just blew my mind. And that shaped the way that I do the way that I do my work. Okay. Well, any notable uh, experiences like, you know, someone you met that was really good at a particular aspect of this? Actually. So there was one uh, Armenian shaman that I worked with and, you know, we, I was trained through massage and I guess just through life that we try to figure out what the problem is and then we try to fix it, right? We look at the symptoms or whatever, and then we try to correct them. And so I was doing my work very much in that mode of let's figure out what's wrong and let's learn how to correct it. And she was like, what if you just entered every ceremony as if the person was already perfect and you just held that, that thought or that space for them to just be their perfect selves And that kind of blew my mind a little bit. (laughs) Instead of trying to figure out what was wrong, trying to restore what's already there, which is a very holistic way, you know? Does it change the person's experience depending on the state you're in? Like, you know, not everyone has every day is great. So are there some days where you're kind of like, oh, or you're not at your best? And if so, will you not do the session or other, you know, and and the opposite side of it, are there days where you feel amazing? And because of that, the person has a better session than other people would have. I would have to say that I learned really early on that I have to manage my my schedule in a very specific way so that I am at my best at all times. I take days off between ceremonies. I take weeks off after I've had like six weeks of clients. Like this week, I'm going down to Florida for a week to take a break because I did learn that when I'm tired, I'm not able to hold the space as well. Okay. Well, I just didn't know, again, if, if there's some days where you, you feel amazing or maybe you've gotten some new training and now you're doing the session a little bit differently. But, you know, you, you said earlier, you feel like you've got it. You got the formula down. Yeah, no, I definitely do. <laughs> it took it took some practice, though. How many, um, like, ballpark, how many sessions have you done, do you think? 
One-on-one sessions, I would say in the vicinity of 200 to 250. Wow. Um, I do a little bit of group work, but that's less frequently. Anyone request that, like their wife or husband or friend or whoever is in the session with them? You know, not let's say not not taking anything, but sitting there as an, an observer. Or do you ever have people say like, you know, I'm really afraid. Can I have my partner be there with me just in case, like I don't know, my head explodes or something? I have had people request it. I do not allow that because we all have attachment things, right, with our family and our friends and a lot of times our spouses. And when we have that crutch, we don't really, we don't rely on ourselves. We're not able to see and find our own power because we're too busy putting it into the other person. Okay. Has there been anything that came up in a session where you were like, whoa, this is, I didn't expect this. You know, to be honest, I did have a session once when I found out the person that I was sitting with had actually killed somebody else. And I was just about to ask that, you that, yeah. That was a lot, because I totally didn't expect it. It was actually somebody that I knew pretty well. You knew the person that killed, or you knew the person that was killed? I knew the person that did it. Okay. And so that was really shocking, but I was really impressed, honestly, impressed with myself for not, not judging him or um, being triggered by that information and just, like, being compassionate. But it, it was a surprise, to say the least. Huh. How did that affect you? Did you, like, you had to confront that, you know, this knowledge and everything. So did that, I don't know, did that help you? Like, you know, when you do these sessions, do you feel like, you know, selfishly, you get a little bit of help too, even though you're helping the person primarily, but does it, you know, what do these sessions do for you? You've done hundreds of them. How has doing the sessions like changed you? Do you feel more fulfilled or do you feel like you have, I don't know, you're able to relate to people better? Like what, what has it done for you? I feel fulfilled in ways that I did not know were possible. Um, being able to help people really find themselves and live their full life is profound. But I've also reached new depths of compassion for all types of people um, and a greater understanding of how this world works and how trauma works. And, you know, we really we don't have a very good definition of trauma. It turns out that everybody has childhood trauma. It just looks different than we thought it did. Well, really, like how so with some kinds of trauma that I don't know people don't even know about or they wouldn't think is a big deal? Well, so to begin with, a lot of people don't even remember their trauma and because it's locked away so deeply in their subconscious and it's locked away so that they can survive their childhood, right? Because as children, we don't know how to process severe emotions or intense emotions. Um, and a lot of times we store it for later. And so many people have that locked in their body. And I learned this when I went to massage therapy school, that it's locked in our body and then releasing it will sometimes flood us with memories that we didn't know we had. So we have that aspect of it. But also, you know, we think of trauma as being seriously abused in some way, physically, emotionally, verbally. But when you have, let's say, a very narcissistic mother, someone who's really controlling and she doesn't let you out of the house until you're 18 and she controls what you eat and she controls what you watch on TV. Like those things really mess you up and they create all sorts of self-defeating beliefs about you, you know, and those belief systems are running your life behind the scenes. Mm. Now that's a, it's a whole different form of trauma. Okay. Yeah. It's like a long-term effect over years and decades type of trauma that shapes your whole life. It's very complex. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, it makes sense. So do you feel like you, you know, when you're normal interactions with people, you know, you're going to the grocery store or 
you know, you're friends with somebody or whatever, how has it changed your relationships, like with acquaintances and then with friends and then with, you know, family and stuff like that? Um, so with friends, a lot of friends dropped off kind of naturally um, when I started down this path because I came, I became pretty real. There was no more like facade. There was no more persona. And once that drops away, people see who you really are and they either like you or they don't. And so my friendships really definitely changed forms. But now I have best friends instead of just a whole bunch of acquaintances, which is nice. My relationship with my family has changed a lot because now I have a different appreciation for my parents. And, you know, finding out that some of my sexual trauma from childhood was actually with extended family members, that's kind of, it's strained the relationship a bit, but all for the better, in my opinion. What happens when you run into someone that's a jerk or they're, you know, just, I don't know, you just don't like? If you run into someone you don't like, what what do you do now instead of, like, what did you used to do before? What do you do now? You know, I used to work in the legal field, so I feel like that happened a lot. <laughs> and it was just like, yeah, it was yeah, yeah. it was part of the lifestyle, right? And now I just don't. And when I encounter somebody who's unhappy, I feel compassion for them, right? Because there's a reason that they're a jerk. It's because something isn't going right for them, and they're taking it out on other people. Yeah, I learned that recently. I forget it all the time, but it, it just, I just forget. But, you know, like a few people I know that were mean and got nice all of a sudden is because something in their life they figured out. Like, like one guy I know, he, you know, he was gay and he finally came out to his parents and everyone. And now he's has a boyfriend and he's happier with himself as himself. And he's nice right. before he was a freaking jerk. And I, you know, I don't want to talk to him, but now he's much better. And I realized, okay, probably a lot of the reason people are mean and nasty is because they're unhappy with themselves. And again, they're just lashing out at everyone and everything. Always, yes. So um, uh, the mushrooms that you use, have you done sessions with ayahuasca or other substances? Or do you feel like the mushrooms are like the number one tool or is there any need to use other substances? So previously I did actually work with ayahuasca and I worked with that exclusively for a bit, but it was so hard on most people's bodies. It was... There are so many contraindications and the typical Westerner just isn't in the type of health you need to be in to drink ayahuasca, like to be real. It's very well suited for people down in the jungle. They don't have all the processed food and the constant stimulation and the prescription medication. And so when I switched over to psilocybin, I just noticed that everyone had a better experience, that it was smoother. Um, you didn't have to go on this extreme diet for two weeks before and after and so, yeah, I work with that exclusively, but I work with other plants that are non-psychoactive, like, you know, regular herbalist type stuff. Oh, so do you need to prepare people physically in order to do the mushrooms? I mean, it sounds like a lot more with ayahuasca, but with mushrooms, like, what do people need to prepare for the session with you? Most of the preparation is actually emotional, um, just allowing space for their emotions to come up, for things to come to the surface before we even sit together. A lot of people are very intertwined with their addictions. So whether that's like video games or the news or cannabis, I ask that all of that gets put down for about a week beforehand and that they eat intuitively. So try not to eat emotionally, if that makes sense. Yeah. Well, late night, if you're, uh, you know, if you're not feeling good and you just, there's ice cream and you eat it for instance, right. Or what, like what are other emotional eating cues you've seen? So people who eat emotionally, they eat because it feels good versus eating because you're hungry, which is eating for your body. 
And even just directing someone's attention and say, hey, for the week beforehand, can you try to pay attention to when you eat and why you eat and make sure that it's actually out of hunger, that changes the way that they eat or at least, you know, sheds light on something that they're doing. Oh, have you had people that they go through the week and they're like, hey, you know what? I feel so much better. Maybe I don't need to come. Nope. (laughs) Actually, most I actually started having to charge a deposit, which I wasn't doing previously because so many people were having these emotional outbursts or nightmares or psychedelic episodes before they even came to satin ceremony with me, and they would get scared off. Oh, really? What does this session cost approximately? For a one-on-one session, it's eight hundred and fifty. Okay, but it's all day, and so what do people do? Do they um, are people usually local to you, or do they fly in and? Like you meet with them in the morning and you tell them, all right, we're going to go the whole day and do we done at night and stuff like that? Or like, you know, what's the, the, the plan for the day? So actually, most people come from out of state. I get people from all over the country. They stay nearby at a hotel. We spend the entire day together. Sometimes they stay in the area to do hiking or exploration or whatnot. But, you know, we do meet usually by Zoom a couple of weeks before we sit in ceremony together. And so they're already prepped for it. Um, this past year, do you have people that, you know, COVID has set them off emotionally and they're a mess and you do the session and then they feel better about that. Has that come up? Literally everybody I've worked with this year, like either they're stuck at home and now they have to face themselves (laughs) or their spouse or their lifestyle or something. This whole year has actually been amazing for making people look in the mirror. Oh, so there is some good stuff that's come over you. Oh my God. Yeah, absolutely. Is there anything that I haven't you know, asked you about that's important to talk about? You know, I think it's a, I just want to touch on just a little bit. Right now, we're seeing a decriminalization effort across the country with entheogens, right? And some cities are different than others. But we're really starting to understand that putting all of these plant medicines on Schedule 1 may not have been the right approach. And John Hopkins is really leading that research and providing us with a lot of insight in how psilocybin can be helpful But I think it's also really important not to discount the spiritual part of it. You know, in order to get this, at least someone into the mainstream, Johns Hopkins has to do it clinically. They have to kind of do it, you know, that follows all the scientific trappings and everything. I I understand at least. Mm -hmm. I think that's why they do it. Um, But yeah, the other side of the the spiritual side, you know, people like you, hopefully this will at least, I mean, do you feel like the work they're doing is just going to help the whole, I don't want to call it an industry, but I don't know what you call it, but... Unfortunately, it is an industry, right? As soon as we thin- synthesize psilocybin, it's no longer a plant medicine. It's a prescription. And the indigenous people all over the world have been working with mushrooms for tens of thousands of years. And so I think that's also important is that we don't forget that these, these little dudes grow outside. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, they're, they're best in their natural form, I got to say. What do you hear about mushrooms from, like, these, you know, these indigenous peoples? Like, how do they talk about them? I'm sure it's completely different from how Johns Hopkins researchers talk about them, but do they talk mm-hmm. about them in still yet a different way than you've ever seen? Like, you know, with the people you run into that, again, do shamanism like you and, you know, give mushrooms to people. I don't know. Is there anyone that has described them in a way that really stuck with you or you're like, whoa, I didn't think about that? Yeah, I mean, most indigenous approaches are very similar to mine. You know, we teach the We treat the plant as a teacher because it is. And when we honor it and respect it for being that teacher, we're able to work with it in ways that that we would have thought impossible. You know, it becomes 
unlimited in its potential. And that honoring of the plant is really important to the, to my practice, but also a lot of the indigenous practices. Okay. Gotcha. What's the best way for people to get in touch with you if they want help for themselves or, you know, someone else? The best way to get in touch would be the website is sacredheartmedicine.us and just kind of check it out, poke around, see if it feels good and reach out from there. Oh, and last thing, you know, unfortunately, it's just like everything else. I'm sorry. I'm sure some shamans are like fugazis or fakers or not, you know, not really uh, in the best interest of everyone. Any tips on when someone's considering working with a shaman on things to watch out, like red flags? Yeah, so a couple things. One, you should always follow your gut, your intuition. If something doesn't feel good, don't go with the person. And I don't care if that's me or somebody else, um, just in general. It's all about how it feels. But also, their life is a reflection of their own personal work. You know, if if they're constantly complaining about how they don't have enough money or their house is really dirty, that sort of thing, those are really big red flags. It means that they're not taking care of their own spiritual work. Yeah, you don't want a shaman that's like, you know, three-quarters crazy themselves because uh, it could alter what happens with you, you know? I mean, we're all crazy, I'm, to be real. <laughs> I think that's most schizophrenics are shamans who haven't had training. Interesting. Yeah. All right. Well, very good. Well, Nadia, thanks for coming on the podcast. It's been a really cool call. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.